Braintree, Massachusetts, hometown to some of the major figures in the American Revolution. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Nina Sankovich to the program. Thanks for joining us, Nina. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to be here to, to talk with you today. Nina Sankovich is on the line from Westport, Connecticut. She's worked as a corporate lawyer. She's a graduate of Harvard Law. She's written several books. Her first was Tolstoy and the Purple Chair, My Year of Magical Reading, a memoir about using reading as a means to recover from the grief of losing her older sister to cancer. More recently, she wrote a book called The Lowells of Massachusetts, An American Family. And now Nina Sankovich is author of a new book called American Rebels, How the Hancock, Adams, and Quincy Families Fanned the Flames of Revolution. The book is published by St. Martin's Press. What led you first to focus on the Lowells in your earlier history book and then on the other families in, in the new book, these specific families? The research for one book will lead me to the next book. So the way I came to write the Lowells is that I had written a, a book called um, Sign Seal Delivered, Celebrating the Joys of Letter Writing, in which I looked at the history of letter writing through the ages. I mean, I went back to the ancient Egyptians, who interestingly wrote thousands of letters, some of which have been preserved. Um, and I really wanted to read the letters of one of my favorite poets, Amy Lowell, who I had just loved since I was a girl. Um, I thought I'd love to read her letters. I know she had a fascinating life. So I went in search of those letters and discovered that she had put in her will a provision that all of her letters should be burned upon her death. She wanted to mm. preserve the, the privacy of her letters. So I was devastated, but then I realized, um, you know what, she can only burn what she had, and there must be other letters out there. So that led me to just start researching Amy Lowell, what was she trying to hide, where are her letters, and that led just to, you know, just becoming fascinated with her entire family, starting with the very first Lowell that came over in the 1630s. And so that's where the Lowells of Massachusetts came from. And while I was writing the Lowells of Massachusetts, I wrote about John Lowell, who was a lawyer during the Revolutionary Times. Um, but in, in the years leading up to the Revolution, he was uncertain about whether he should join the rebels who were fomenting protests against the against Britain, or whether he should stay a loyalist. I and mean, he was really torn, and he was a good man. He, he, he brought lawsuits on behalf of enslaved black people to, to, for them to seek freedom. He, you know, he did lots of good things, but he just couldn't wrap his, his mind around the idea of revolution, of rebellion. He finally did make the choice to join the rebels in the rebellion, and he became you know, a prominent leader in the American Revolution in terms of... Um, the privateering enterprises that went out and secured a lot of supplies for Americans during the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. And so that really got me thinking about how when we are taught American history in school, we really don't ponder this question of how did the colonists decide to rebel? Was that an easy decision to make or was it a hard one? And you know what? It was a very, very hard decision to make. I mean, you are raised to be loyal to king, loyal to loyal to the British Constitution, 
And those two loyalties started to conflict because the British Constitution was very clear about what were the rights of the British citizens. And the way King and Parliament began to treat the colonies when they started to pay attention again to the colonies in the 1750s and 60s was was really an, an abrogation of these rights that they had under the British the whole system of the British Constitution, the laws, the common law, cases that had been decided. Um, but it wasn't easy to say, I'm going to go against everything I've been raised to be a good, loyal you know, citizen and, and start a new country. I mean, it was a huge decision to make. And so I wanted to really find a community to study in which there were both loyalists and rebels and where that decision cut across class lines, cut across gender lines, because I really wanted to understand how was it that someone would either decide to stay loyal or decide to rebel? Did one's gender have something to do with it? Did the social class in which you raise the, have something to do with it? Did your education level have something to do with it? And I found all of those factors in Braintree. I found that here was this little village, yet there were loyalists there. And lo and behold, so many of the leaders of the American Revolution were all from this little village. And once I found that little town, I mean, I was just hooked. And I knew that I had to write about them. Um, and, and, and then the research uh, just, just took off. This was so fascinating. I got a fellowship from the Massachusetts Historical Society, which allowed me to just spend so much time going through their incredible archives. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, and what I discovered was, was just fascinating. Now, did you find that there was something about the lives that your main characters, if you will, lived in Braintree that made many of the Braintree folks more prone to rebel? I definitely did find that. And that was an interesting mixture of sort of what, so you have these small villages that grow up with, with you know, are really built on immigrants coming over from England. Why did they leave England in the first place? Because they wanted to try something new. They wanted to live life their own way. So they kind of had already this spirit of, I want to do things my way. I don't want someone to tell me what to do. I don't like whatever sort of oppression I feel I'm living under. Then you have their sort of future generations are kind of raised on this myth of what, you know, myth, but true. There's truth, there's truth in that myth. Um, of why their their forebears came to America in the first place, um, and you also have a a Congregationalist faith that has evolved um, since the 1630s into the into the 18th century has evolved into a more op not open religion in terms of um, allowing lots of different sort of behaviors or anything like that, but open in terms of one's own responsibility to take care of one's own fate. So it used to be, you know, your fate was determined, God had it written in a book, you were done, predestination. But there was an opening up of that in the 18th century where colonists really began to feel, I am in control of my life, and I, am in, and I have a duty to my community that was very strongly instilled by their religion and by their forebears, this idea of duty to community. So I think something that really impressed me so much was how strong a sense of duty to community all of these different rebels had and how they interpret that duty in a different way. But it all came down to what's good for the people I live with? How can I protect them? What can I do for them? And so um, 
it just seemed, yes, it was, it was natural mm-hmm. that in this place of, of sort of um, really brave people who had first settled there in the community, and I, and I have a whole chapter about a variety of different, very rebellious types who had lived in Braintree long before it was even called Braintree. Um, I think there was something, in, you know, just being raised in such a village and in such a church that allowed them to really, um, you know, have the, have the guts to rise up and, and do what they thought was mm-hmm. right. Now, your book begins with the funeral in 1744 of Reverend John Hancock, who I believe was the father of the John Hancock we know. So he also yeah. grew up in um, in Braintree. And his sermons were, um, I don't know, did they kind of point the way to this idea of having a different form of government? Well, his sermons definitely um, uh we're very strong on the theme of beauty of community, but also um, the idea of liberty and freedom, that people have the, have the right to liberty. They have the right to pursue their dreams, and it is their responsibility and their duty to pursue their dreams and also on behalf of their community. And what is interesting is to see another thing that came up in my research was how often actually ministers' sermons played a role in um, sort of fomenting ideas of revolution, of self-determination, of independence. And although there were certainly ministers who preached, you know, loyalty to the king, loyalty to the king, there was such a strong voice in so many pulpits saying, you are, you are the one who must determine your fate. You are the one who must, um, you know, submit to your duty to God to do good for others. And, and, and so I found that very interesting and very surprising. I wasn't expecting that. And I do think that all of these rebels who I talk about in my book, they were raised on the sermons of Reverend Hancock. There is just no doubt in my mind that those sermons were embedded in their ideals of what they could do and what they should do. John Adams was one of the Braintree boys, if you if you will. His wife, Abigail, I believe came from a, a town near there. Is that right, Nina? Yes. Uh, she grew up nearby in Weymouth, but she actually spent much of her childhood in Braintree, where her grandmother lived. And uh, she, she writes in her, you know, in different letters of how it was her grandmother who who was so important to her in terms of growing up and, and in terms of lessons that she learned. And she really preferred to be in Braintree. Um, although, of course, she loved her sisters who were in Weymouth, but she mm-hmm. just loved the freedom um, that her grandmother gave her. Her grandmother saw her as sort of a very um, lively, cultish woman who should be given free reign to be the woman uh, who she would become. And uh, and she certainly became a very strong, independent um woman who had a lot to say, and I loved reading all of the things that she had to say in mm. John Adams and her other friends. So um, she was it, a real heroine of mine as I wrote the book. Sure. And what was her maiden name? Smith. Smith, Abigail Smith. Smith. These are, let's say, John Adams, Abigail Adams, John Hancock. You know, they're, they're pretty much well known in the American history story. But you also write about another guy, another man, who I don't think is as well known. I just want to ask you about him. Um, and and your, uh, his name is Josiah Quincy Jr. Uh, who is he and what did he do for the revolutionary cause? 
Well, he really is a forgotten hist- uh, forgotten hero of the American Revolution. Um, he was a lawyer and a passionate lawyer, and also what, what we would call, what they called it, a pamphleteer. He wrote um, articles for newspapers that were then put into pamphlets on different issues of the day. And he took issue very often <clears throat> with the way um, England was running its colonies in America. And he wrote very passionately about the duty of the colonists to stand up for their rights, to fight the oppressor, to be strong, to work for one's community. Um, and his writings were, were widely spread, very influential, and they were important to the Sons of Liberty in Boston, um, started by, you know, led, led by Sam Adams there in Boston, because Josiah Quincy was able to bring in sort of the upper classes to the fight against the British. Um, and this was important so that you had a, a large range of people supporting the efforts to, against the oppressions of Britain. Um, he also was very much a diplomat, and he went to the southern colonies to make sure they were on board with the northern colonies in terms of what Mm -hmm. they wanted from Britain. And for a very long time, Josiah was not interested in independence. He really just wanted England to give back to the colonists the rights he felt were were their birthright, the rights under the British Constitution. He came to the idea of independence only after he lost complete hope um, in the goodness of king or a parliament. While he was traveling in the South, he, he, he had a, a very um, detailed travel journal in which he wrote extensively about the horrors of slavery. And he prophesied that slavery would be a big issue in the United States and would tear, of course, he didn't use the term United States, but he did talk about United Colonies and how slavery would really tear at the union of the colonies because it was such a contentious issue, and in his mind was just so completely immoral, it could not be countenanced. Mm-hmm. And Josiah Quincy, and obviously this adds a lot of interest in, in your book, it's a sad thing, but he was not well. He was like not well from the get-go. He had what they used to call consumption Yes, that's right. And he was diagnosed already in his teens, and then diagnosis confirmed um, after law school. He he suffered terribly, along with he had a brother who also had well, what would what we would call tuberculosis, and um, he undertook this journey to the south to to get all the colonies together, and then he undertook another journey across the sea to Britain to try to get the king to really see what was happening in the colonies. And these journeys were against all common sense. I mean, he was just a sickly man. He should not have taken to the seas, um, but he just could not give up. And he almost used his illness as a spur. He would say to people, I know I don't have long to live. Um, He said, the seeds of dissolution are well planted in me. Really strong line. Um, And he wanted to do everything he could in what little time he had to help his his colonies, to, to pull his, the, all the colonies together. And he understood early on that only if the colonies stayed together, united, would they be able to be strong enough to demand their rights um, and, and, if necessary, fight uh, with weapons for their rights against the British. And he was right. It was the united um, front of the colonies that was so important to winning the, the American mm. Revolution. 
Now, if this were a, a novel of fiction, uh, this would be a spoiler. But I mean, it, it's a, in point of fact, he's a historical figure, and he he met an untimely death, if you will, uh, where things were really in in flux, he, and uh, it, it did cause quite a, a, a disruption. It did. He he actually um, was returning from England with a secret message of um, help that would be coming to the colonists from allies in England. And this was April of 1770. The 75. Lexington, yes, the Lexington Concord battle is going on. He's on a ship coming back from England, and he has this secret message. He has no idea that Lexington Concord is going on. Of course, um, in Massachusetts, everybody is hearing about this horrible battle of Lexington Concord. Meanwhile, Josiah Quincy's ship has arrived in, in Gloucester, and he is too ill to even get off the boat. He can see the land, but he just can't even rise to get off the boat. And his last words have been, have been taken by a sailor. And this, but the, he said to the sailor, I cannot give you this secret message. So we never know what that message was or what the help uh -huh. that he had, had offered to give. But it was only you know, days later that people started to get the news that Josiah Quincy had died. And in the meantime, the, the selectmen of Gloucester had just buried him in their cemetery. And it was, uh, it was only during the war that his father was able to, to recover his son's body. But um, it's just such a tragedy that he, that he died like that. And um, he would never see the independence that, that he wrote so, so furiously and passionately about. We're talking with Nina Sankovich about her book, American Rebels, How the Hancock, Adams, and Quincy Families Fanned the Flames of Revolution, the American Revolution. We'll be back in just a moment. Did want to put in a word for our GoFundMe campaign, which keeps the Historians podcast on the internet. You'll find on our main website, bobcudmore.com, a link to the GoFundMe campaign, and they can walk you through that if you'd like to make a donation, or if you'd rather uh, make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, you can send it to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. We're talking with Nina Sankovich, author of a new book called American Rebels, How the Hancock, Adams, and Quincy Families Fanned the Flames of Revolution. What I really found interesting is that your book doesn't exclusively focus on one individual, but has this ensemble cast of uh, characters. And I got more and more interested as your narrative uh, went went through time. Um, the rebels, of course, were not perfect. Uh, you mentioned uh, Josiah Quincy Jr. and slavery, but John Adams, for example, did not advocate for African-American slaves or, or for women for example, as yeah. uh, they're, they're working on the Declaration of Independence and other documents, although his wife, Abigail, was more liberated on those issues. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Abigail wrote to him. I mean, it's a very famous letter that she wrote, Remember the Ladies, um, because she saw she was really um, the matriarch of, of Braintree um, in the years leading up to the revolution and during the revolution, she held things together for so many people of the village. She, she took care of them they, when they were sick. She guided them on their gardens. She helped them with their families. And she saw how women were 
really oppressed by by the by the laws by by how they could not stand up for themselves they could not you know hold their own property they could not leave someone who was abusive and she advocated very strongly to John that you needed to give women the right to protect themselves um, and she felt the same about enslaved people, that, that nobody should be in slavery, that it was morally wrong. It was it, it was against everything that she believed in. Um, and her letters to John Adams are, are very forceful. Um, but unfortunately, not forceful enough. John Adams was definitely more um, pragmatic, I'd have to say. He just wanted to make sure that the Declaration of Independence went through and that the union of the colonies stayed strong. Before reading your book, I, I wasn't as appreciative of the contributions that John Hancock had made to the American Revolution. I had this sort of opinion of him that he was this rich guy who was in it for the glory, you know, with his big signature on the Declaration of Independence, for example. Yeah. But he did a lot for the cause, did he not? He did a lot from the cause from, from the beginning. Um, he used his wealth to help others. And he put his wealth on the line. I mean, he really put his life in danger by taking such a prominent role in in um, in fomenting revolution. He had he was a, probably the most popular figure in Boston. So he was the influencer of his time, we might say. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to sway so much opinion in favor of uh, of fighting for revolution, of fighting for independence. And um, and this, of course, put his life in danger, put all of his wealth in danger, and yet he he really kept going. And he he wrote quite eloquently as well to uh, many of his friends and fellow merchants in England, asking for their help, asking for their understanding. So he really was instrumental in bringing people together. And the role he played in the Continental Congress, again, he was good at getting people to work together. I mean, John Adams was a what what could be a real pain and really annoyed a lot of people and could never have brought people together the way John Hancock did. Mm. And let me ask you the, this uh, question. Uh, I, I find, as I said, maybe three or four times, I really enjoyed the book. And I, I think it's, uh, and I don't mean to be demeaning with this, it's a novelistic approach to me to history. And it's really kind of makes me pay attention to some of the things that happened uh, in in history with this cast of characters that you follow over a specific number of years as the revolution breaks out. Are you getting any pushback from the historian side? I mean, you're not a history professor at a university right, or anything right. like that. Uh, well, first, I, I have to say, I take that really as a compliment that you say that it's a novelistic interpretation, because that is exactly what I set out to do. And I did the same with the Lowells of Massachusetts. Um, I was a history major in college. I've always loved history, but I've always really disliked boring history books, books that didn't grab me the way a novel grabs me. So both the Lowell's and American Rebels are completely based on fact. Every quote, every emotion, everything is based on a letter or a journal entry or a newspaper article. Everything is factual. And yet I wanted to present it in a way that people would would enjoy reading the history and could really absorb the history the way we absorb novels. Um, during my year of reading a book a day, uh, after my sister died, it was I found so much wisdom and guidance in novels and also in history books that read as novels. And I knew that 
I wanted to write history books that read like a good old book, you know, that you just wanted to sit down and read and get to know the characters. I also think history is told by the people who lived in those times. And we learn the most from the experiences of those actual people who actually lived. Um, I'm getting a lot of positive response from historians, which I'm happy about. Um, there was an early review that criticized some of my facts, which I, which I found completely surprising because my facts are facts. They are what they are. And so that distressed me a bit. But, um, but by having, you know, you can see the research that I did at the end of my book. You can see the, the notes that I have. My work is grounded in fact. But I tell the story, hopefully, as a good storyteller would tell the story. We've been focusing on the rebels. I mean, that's the title of your book. But you write about the loyalists, and one of them was a Quincy, right? Sam Quincy? Yeah. yeah. What, what the was his story? The brother to Josiah. I mean, the brother to Josiah, and they were close brothers. And that was also very interesting to me, especially given the very partisan times that we live in. In the revolutionary era, loyalist, rebel, those divisions occurred within families. And yet the families stayed in touch with each other. They talked to each other. They, they, I don't want to say they respected each other's choices because they couldn't understand how one would stay loyal and one wouldn't. And they criticized each other's choices, but they didn't cast them out or uh, insult them or belittle them or berate them. Um, and so Sam Quincy and Josiah Quincy are, are brothers, and they have a sister named Hannah who is quite angry when Sam Quincy leaves Boston um, after Lexington and Concord to go to England. And she thinks he's just escaping because he's a loyalist. And he actually writes to her, I'm going to England to do what I can. Never accuse me of betraying my country. I'm going to do what I can for my country. So even though He's called a loyalist, and his properties are confiscated from him, um, and he never sees his children again. He himself doesn't see himself as a loyalist. He sees himself as someone who loves his country in a different way than his brother loves his country. Hmm. But he did leave his family behind, right? His wife and children when he went over to England? Yeah, he did. Um, And the wife went to live with her brother, and his father, as far as I could tell from all the letters uh, that I looked for, his father never wrote to him again, and he never wrote to his father again. So there was definitely a schism there. He was reunited with his wife um, after the war on the, you know, on the island of Antigua, where he had been uh, appointed a, a crown officer um, at the customs office there. But the letters that he and his wife write back and forth while they're separated, while she is in Cambridge living with her brother, and he is in London trying to to argue for the patriots, or not for the patriots, but for the colonies, Um, Mm -hmm. these letters are very touching. And they clearly loved each other and missed each other. And and the his wife also seemed to understand why he had to go, and so it's very it's very interesting to read about such sort of levels of understanding in a time when we are so harshly partisan that it's just was hmm. very uh, very interesting to me. This has been the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.